Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Beaumont. Songcraft brings you conversations with and about the men and women who've put pen to paper, hands to keyboards, and fingers to strings to create lyrics and music that stand the test of time. You probably know the names, and you definitely know the songs. We bring you the stories. Keep up with us via Facebook, Twitter, or our website by searching for one word, Songcraft Show. While Songcraft is always free, if you believe in our mission of preserving and presenting these important conversations, we invite you to visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. There you can help support us with a voluntary monthly pledge that will also give you access to bonus content and other extras as our way of saying thanks for your continued support. We got You're listening to Johnny Cash and June Carter's Jackson, which topped the country charts in 1967 and earned the pair a Grammy Award for their performance. It was written by Billy Ed Wheeler, a self-described hillbilly poet from Appalachian coal country who went to school at Yale and was eventually inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. Billy Ed is our guest in part three of this special episode of Songcraft. In part two, we talk about Songcraft's Patreon page and let our listeners in on the secret of how you can get your very own signed copy of Billy Ed's brand new memoir, Hotter Than a Pepper Sprout. But first, in part one, Paul throws out a topic for discussion that's very important, or maybe just very fun. Part one. Well, uh, sometimes we start these uh, early parts of the conversation talking about something that has to do with our guests or somehow related you know, to the guests that we're going to have on the show. And then sometimes we have conversations that are just the kind of things that we sit around and talk about. This is one of <laughs> those conversations. Um, I'm, curious, has, I'm curious where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> this has nothing to do with uh, uh, you know, who we're having in the, in the interview coming up. So today's conversation, we wanted to talk about the, the kind of thing that we have wasted time talking about since we were 15 <laughs> years old. And today's topic is which artists, when you hear them, look like they sound. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Like, like if I hear right. a song on the radio or, or on a record and I go, man, I picture in my head what that artist right. sounds like. Right. Sometimes you'll go and you'll see like a photo of that artist or watch a video and you're like, uh, wow, I didn't <laughs> see that at all. Right. right. And then sometimes you look and you're like, yep. Yeah. Sounds about right. All right. I see where you're going with that. So, so I've got a few here uh, that, uh, <laughs> that I think sound exactly like they look and look right. exactly like they sound and, and then a few surprises. So, right. um, uh, I'd like you to do the same. Okay, I will. Uh, I will do my best. So I want to start with one of the artists that I think looks exactly like they sound. Okay. And that's Joe Cocker. <laughs> when, when I hear, "What would you do?" You know, right. I think that guy looks like he slept in his own trunk. <laughs> and then, if you've ever seen the clips of Joe Cocker singing at Woodstock, yeah. He looks like he slept in his own trunk or someone's trunk. He slept somewhere for a few days. Yeah. Or or like he's never slept. It's one of the two. So I think Joe Cocker is kind of my my flagship artist that looks like he sounds. All right. Uh, so, all right. So I, 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 I have sort of, it's more of a genre of dude, but I'll, I'll just pick one. Okay. Uh, Randy Owen from Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> I remember we were listening to some record one time and, and, and I, I don't even remember who it was, but you're like, I feel like I can hear his beard <laughs> and I feel like yeah. I can hear uh, Randy Owens beard and his satin baseball jacket. Well, <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> they probably had to take the satin baseball jacket off when recording vocals because those things are kind of swishy. You don't want to hear that. Kind of get swishy yeah, in the mic. Yeah. All right. Well, okay. I'm I'm gonna go kind of on a tangent from that with my next one because when I hear Randy Owens' beard, I can hear that it's manicured. <laughs> I, I can hear that it's not just a beard like left to its own devices. Right. But when I hear Kenny Rogers, I hear a beard let go. <laughs> Kenny Rogers to me, I can hear his blazer. Right. And I can hear his beard. Like when he sings The Gambler, yeah. I'm like, that is not a clean shaven man. <laughs> That's somebody with a with a salt and pepper beard. There's some living in that beard. Right. So Kenny Rogers to me looks like he sounds. Okay. Uh he's manicured now. Yeah. yeah. He's manicured now, but in the but day back in the day his beard I, I feel like his beard was unruly in a in a semi planned fashion. I feel like his beard and his blazer were competitive with one another for his attention. <laughs> I think the blazer won. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, here's a guy that looks like he sounds Weird Al Yankovic. <laughs> <laughs> Nerdy? <laughs> yeah, just the glasses and, yeah. uh, you know, yeah, just kind of like nerdy. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah. I would love to have Weird Al on the show, by the way, so I oh hope I didn't gosh. offend Al by calling him nerdy. But he had a song called White and Nerdy. That was uh, yeah, Riding Dirty, I think, was the <laughs> right, song right. he was parodying. So. We should definitely have Weird Al on this show. Well, my, my third one is is not one that I really listen to, and it's but I, I know we have a lot of country music listeners in the Songcraft audience, so I'm right. hoping that this will resonate with you. But sometimes you'll hear someone, and you're like, that person sounds huge. Like physically huge? Yes. Okay. And Trace Adkins sounds huge. <laughs> like when you see just how giant that guy is, and right. his voice is about 10 octaves deep. It, you feel like if he came out and was like, You'd be like, that's impossible. But Trace Atkins sounds like he looks just a a behemoth of a man. Yeah. Uh, All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with Marilyn Manson. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) He he looks like he sounds. Yeah. He he looks he he sounds like one of his eyes is completely white. (laughs) And I think that's that's what. Yeah. He uh, he he he's definitely captured the aesthetic, uh, both uh, visually and. uh, I, I feel like he chose a look first. Right. I said, now that I look like this, what, what should am I, I sound say? like? Yeah, you can't look like that and and play folk music. No, but that might that might be the next frontier. Do you remember when there was a rumor that uh, Marilyn Manson was the kid that played Paul on The Wonder Years? I do remember that. I feel like the internet has killed the opportunity for those kind of rumors to thrive in, in, in today's oh, world. No, do you remember how many times John Bon Jovi died when we were in elementary school? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right, so these are guys, or artists, let's say, that... Do not look like they sound. Okay. I'm going to start with Frankie Valli. Because <laughs> <laughs> I got a little guy that looks like he's straight off the set of Donnie Brasco. <laughs> and he's like, wah, 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 wah. I don't see any of that coming when I see Frankie Valli walking yeah, in. Yeah, that's a good point. Some of this is hard to like, uh, some of this is, is hard to conceive of because we are now so familiar with these people. Right. So. This one you might be kind of like what, but you got to go back to the first time you saw him. Okay, Ed Sheeran. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, kind of soulful voice. Yeah, sounds like the dude at the party that might take your girl. Right, and you're like, oh, he's a ginger. <laughs> right, right, but it, but if you walked into the party and scanned the room and thought, who's gonna take my girl? You might not say right. that dude. Right, that oh, guy right there. I gotta watch out for that dude. Right, right. That's a good point. <laughs> All right. Uh, well. <laughs> I remember when I was in high school, uh, I had a girlfriend that made me uh, a mixtape, and it was legit a tape, because right. this was the the golden era, early 90s, right. so it was a cassette tape, and it was this little known band that no one had heard of called Blues Traveler, right? 
and I heard the singer of Blues Traveler, and I was like, ooh, there's like a, a kind of a Caribbean, like dreadlocked, you know, looking dude singing this kind of like kind of funky stuff. Right. And then I saw a picture of John Popper. <laughs> and I was like, that, uh, that's not what I pictured when I heard this stuff. The opposite of Trace Adkins. Totally. And uh, yeah, most of him hidden by a giant uh, harmonica vest just <laughs> right. and, and, and the hat and then just his just him. Right. But I didn't I didn't picture John Popper. Yeah. No, I hear that. Uh, I would say very much in keeping with the same uh, the same theme there is uh, is that Hawaiian guy is. <laughs> oh, dude. <laughs> yeah, totally. I wish I'd have done that. Oh, he was he was that one. he was giant. <laughs> Yet his voice was so like airy. And... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, wow. But by the way, you're all welcome for hearing me do that. You're welcome. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm gonna go with this. That's my. That's, that's my. Uh, that's a great one. Yeah, this could be a category of like big guys that sound small. <laughs> yeah, we're really focusing on the size. <laughs> All right. Well, this one's not my final one. Is uh, is to me kind of maybe the ultimate, and uh, it's Rick Astley. <laughs> when I heard on the radio, and I and I'm not gonna try to imitate this one. It's it's still morning for me. But when I heard like never gonna give you up. Yeah. And that. His voice is all just like round right. and big and kind of in the front of his face. Right. Can I just be honest with you? There's no way I thought that was a white dude. There's <laughs> right. certainly no way I thought it was a white dude that looked like Howdy Doody. It was <laughs> right. out there dancing in like a like a double-breasted sailor jacket <laughs> like he just stepped out of the yacht club. Right. So, uh, and for those of you who don't know who Rick Astley is, I'm I'm certain you've been Rickrolled at one point uh, in your life. Just, it's that guy. <laughs> it's the guy who Rickrolled you. Oh, man. All right. Well, all right. So I have to go last here. I'm gonna I'm gonna choose a guy, who, if I were to see this person in a dark alley, with his sleeveless vest, and his his uh, oh dude his cuffs on. I know who this is. I can't believe his, I didn't do this one. And his his gnarled look. <laughs> this uh, is the one. This Aaron is the Neville. One. Aaron Neville. That's the ultimate. <laughs> so my my mother in law wow. is a big Aaron Neville fan, and. Uh, she loves his voice. She also thinks he's he's quite a looker. Wow. So, you know, there's that. But my favorite quote from my mother-in-law, which I think sums up Aaron Neville, she always says, you know why I love Aaron Neville? Because he's got the body of a boxer and the voice of an angel. <laughs> so there you go. Body of a boxer and voice of an angel is wow. the ultimate. Does not look like they sound. I can't wait to hear an artist that has the body of an angel and the voice of a boxer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be on the lookout for that. We could make a million dollars if we found that artist. A million dollars. I think it's you. <laughs> I'm going to start working out. <laughs> well, uh, thanks for indulging us with this. Uh, I feel like you've all been let in on one, <laughs> one a classic time waster. Right. Between the two of us. Stay tuned for the next exciting episode of Who Takes Their Wallet on Stage. <laughs> Part two. You know, listening back to this conversation, it, it sort of has like a like a vintage feel. It feels like a Songcraft vintage. <laughs> That's true. We actually, uh, though we've not aired this interview yet, it was actually recorded uh, yeah. well over a year ago, maybe a couple years ago. Um, and uh, it's cool to kind of listen back, and it, it does uh, feel like I, I can't even put my finger on it, but there is a certain element to it. That... I hear a youthful energy in you, um, you know, before you got just beaten down by the world's pressures. By life. Yeah, yeah. And... I would call it an, an, an innocence. 
<laughs> I, I hear like a wide-eyed innocence yeah. in your voice. Yeah, yeah. And now I'm, now I'm old and grizzled, and uh, yes. and, and it's fun to listen back to, to what I once was. Now, actually, this is a fairly significant episode, and there's a reason that we didn't uh, – didn't air it for um, for a long time, and uh, the reason is because at the uh, end of our phone conversation with Billy Ed, he mentioned that he's working on his autobiography, and uh, as many of our listeners know, I have uh, a day job at BMG, which is a music company, and uh, I am actually heading up the book division uh, at BMG. And we do all music-related books. But that's a fairly new thing for us. We yeah. actually started that. We just started laying the groundwork for that uh, about a year and a half ago. And um, Billy Ed, when we were talking, mentioned that he was doing his memoir. And, and as it turns out, that was the first book deal that I signed at BMG was Billy Ed. And I knew nothing about his memoir until we talked to him. Yeah. Um, so actually that book is called Hotter Than a Pepper Sprout, A Hillbilly Poet's Journey from Appalachia to Yale to Writing Hits for Elvis, Johnny Cash, and more. He wanted to do a long title, but I, I talked him, <laughs> talked yeah, him yeah, about that. Yeah, kept it short. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so we're, we're excited about that. That book actually is coming out uh, April 3rd. And um, so by the time uh, folks are listening to this interview, they can go right on Amazon.com and, uh, and order that sucker. That's um, cool. So, yeah, we sat on the interview purposefully to tie it in with the release of the book because that's what Billy Ed uh, wanted us to do. And uh, Smart. Yeah, he's a, he's, a, he's a smart guy, that one. That's why I went to Yale. It's what the kids call branding these days. <laughs> indeed, indeed. So we're going to do a little something uh, just for, for fun here. Um, We've got something called Patreon, mm-hmm. and uh, for those of you who who might not know what that is, uh, Paul, why don't you why don't you tell the folks? Uh, Patreon is is a way that listeners can actually get involved in helping Songcraft keep going, um, and it just involves basically small monthly donations that that you can give. I mean, really as little as, as two or five bucks a month or something like that to to help us kind of cover our costs and and keep doing what we're doing here. And the cool thing about Patreon is that each one of those donations comes with sort of like some perks. Yeah, some perks, some some kind of inside stuff, and some of it involves hearing some you know outtakes from the shows. Some of it's uh, uh, talking to us and giving us some input on on show stuff. Some of it involves um, getting signed photos and yeah. you know a- amazing calendar calendar quality photos of the two of us. <laughs> With fully clothed, though, of course. So don't be nervous. Um, <laughs> but they are calendar quality. They are calendar quality, and they have a certain sexy quality just uh, because it's us. Just kind of a je ne sais quoi, <laughs> I would say. Um, so look, let's be real, folks. Uh, we have thousands of people who listen to our show. Our Patreon subscribers are—it's uh, pushing the double-digit mark. Um, <laughs> it's low. <laughs> we know that there's a lot of people who who uh, who listen to the show, and frankly, we really appreciate the people who do support it. It it really just allows us to cover our costs. Yeah. This is a labor of love. We're not making a profit here. We both have have other vocations outside of Songcraft, but we would love to see more people uh, participate in the uh, in the financial end. And so we're going to do a little incentive because we haven't we haven't had anybody sign up uh, for patreon for a while so you can go to patreon.com that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash songcraft show 
And we're going to do a little uh, a little special uh, deal here because the Billy Ed Wheeler book is exciting. It it means something to me personally mm. because this songcraft is where that whole thing was born. Uh, not the book idea; he'd obviously already written right. it, but just the opportunity to for it to be published and to for me to work with Billy Ed Wheeler, who's a, a man that I've come to count as a friend and I have a lot of love and respect for. Mm. So. Um, Whoever signs up as a Patreon supporter, which you can sign up for as little as as two bucks a month, which is which is not even the cost of a cup of coffee. Anybody who signs up as a Patreon supporter, the next the, the first five people to sign up after we launch this episode are going to get a free Billy Ed Wheeler book signed by Billy Ed Wheeler himself. So that's, that's just another cool. little perk there for for new uh, Patreon subscribers. Another cool treat that we're going to be putting up on Patreon for our longtime supporters and new folks who who uh, support us through that is a, an extremely rare recording of the song Jackson that Billy Ed Wheeler sent me. It's actually a live version um, with a woman named Arlene Kesterson who called Billy Ed Wheeler up on stage. Uh, he didn't know they were being recorded, and they did this very lively, kind of feisty version of the song. Um, this is this is way back, uh, just as this song was kind of coming out. It wasn't a big uh, big hit yet or anything so exceptionally rare version of jackson that i guarantee you you've never heard before um so that'll be up there as well for our patreon subscribers to enjoy so go check it out see if it's the right thing for you we don't want to guilt you you know i feel like that's the old public radio thing it's like yeah we're laying it on thick you know we love that people listen to this show so don't feel guilty but if you do feel that little you know stirring in your heart (laughs) (laughs) Then we sure would appreciate that uh, that participation. If if I had like a, a a mini little pipe organ in here, I would have started playing it right there when you talked about the stirring. Yeah, just kind heart, of get a little soft background music. I, I, to, I to don't touch have the soul. that, so oh, well. imagine it <laughs> out there in podcast land. Indeed, indeed. So uh, so yeah, new book. If uh, if you want to check it out, then go sign up for Patreon and. Uh, you know, for, for two bucks a month and a free book, that's a pretty good deal. Not um, bad. And, and otherwise, go check it out on Amazon. And, and uh, I can tell you, uh, as a guy who uh, did a few reads of the drafts of this book, it's a good one. He's a good writer. Part three. Billy Ed Wheeler's early chart successes were collaborations with the legendary songwriting team of Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, who worked with Wheeler more than they did any other outside writer. The team of Lieber and Stoller and Wheeler's first significant hit came with the Kingston Trio's top 10 pop recording of The Reverend Mr. Black in 1963. The trio then found success on the country charts that same year, scoring a top 10 hit with Hank Snow's version of The Woman Who Loved the Man Who Robbed the Bank at Santa Fe and Got Away. Billy Ed Wheeler is best known for writing Jackson, a major hit for Johnny Cash and June Carter in 1967, and Blistered, which was a top 5 hit for Cash shortly after. Other artists who reached the top 20 with Wheeler's compositions include Hank Williams Jr., Johnny Duncan, Jerry Reed, Elvis Presley, and Kenny Rogers, who took Coward of the County to number one on the country chart and number three on the pop rankings. Additionally, Wheeler's songs have been recorded by Judy Collins, Jim Croce, Richie Havens, Bobby Darin, Neil Young, Graham Parsons, Jefferson Airplane, Jerry Lee Lewis, Flatten Scruggs, Conway Twitty and Loretta Lynn, Nancy Sinatra and Lee Hazelwood, Merle Haggard, Glenn Campbell, John Denver, Jimmy Buffett, Wanda Jackson, Chet Atkins, George Strait, Warren Haynes, and others. As an artist, Billy Ed has released nearly 20 albums and has placed seven singles on the Billboard Country Chart. His first, Ode to the Little Brown Shack Outback, became a top five hit in 1965. 
He has earned multiple ASCAP awards and is a member of the West Virginia Music Hall of Fame and the North Carolina Music Hall of Fame. He was inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2001. Wheeler, who pursued his graduate studies at the Yale School of Drama, is also an accomplished playwright, painter, and author, most notably of a revealing new memoir, Hotter Than a Pepper Sprout. We got married in a fever, hotter than a pepper Billy Ed, welcome to Songcraft. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. Well, I actually want to start with uh, one of your more recent cuts, which is uh, Cole Tattoo, which Warren Haynes included on his 2015 album, Ashes and Dust. Traveling down this cold town road, listening to my rubber tires whine. Goodbye to Buckeye, White Sycamore. I'm leaving you. That's a song that has, you know, it's been around a long time. You recorded it as an artist. It's been done by the Kingston Trio, Judy Collins, uh, Jim Croce did it, Matt, Kathy Matea did it, several others. And I understand there's actually some some kind of autobiography uh, in that song. Tell us about where you grew up and how that environment shaped you as a songwriter. Well, uh, I grew up in High Cole, West Virginia. That's in Boone County. I was born right in the middle of Boone County uh-huh. in a place called Whitesville mm-hmm. in 1932. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was a bastard child. Mm-hmm. I didn't know my dad until I was, I didn't meet him until I was 17. Wow. My mother got married when I was about five, five and a half, right. uh, to a man named Arthur Stewart. So I had a stepdad. Okay. So uh, I I grew up in High Cold, and the sad thing was there was not a lot of traditional music, hmm. Hmm. and I didn't really hear much country music. I heard some church music, and they had a thing called shape note singing. Right. Yeah. In church, where they would use do re mi fa so. Right. That was a strange thing, <laughs> yeah. but it was fun. Yeah, yeah. We had a black minister came to our interdenominational church there in High Cold. A very spirited man, and boy, he took pride in that shape note singing. Wow. Hmm. So that was, yeah. there was a guy, a coal miner there named Gene Green. He taught me my first chords on the guitar. <laughs> my uh, introduction to music didn't really happen very much in high coal. We didn't have a lot of tradition. High coal was Anchor Coal Company. And miners were, came there from Poland, Czechoslovakia. Uh, they were Italian, but there were no roots by a lot of people. Interesting. So right. I missed out on that. Where that we're out in the rural areas, there was more tradition, and there would be more groups that got together and picked and sang. Right. right. So I kind of missed that. Sure. Um, well, and once once you started learning guitar, uh, what can you tell us about the first song that you ever wrote? I I had a job when I was about 13 as a paper boy. I had to deliver papers down into the black section of town and in the upper class section up where the pool room and the company store was. And that was a really, really tough job. Mm, I had to get up like at 5 a.m., go down to where the Charleston Gazette dumped off the newspapers, fold them, this would be in the snow and rain and air. I mean, it was tough. So my first song was a result of that, and it was called Paperboy Blues. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, they say they say write what you that, know. Exactly. 
that was my first song. Yeah. Well, you left the West Virginia coal country as a teenager going to school in, in North Carolina before going on to Berea College in Kentucky and then to the to the Navy for a time. And I understand that yeah. you returned to Berea to work in the alumni office, and it was there that you wrote High Flying Bird, which has been recorded by Graham Parsons, Jefferson Airplane, Neil Young, Richie Havens, and several others, including your own sort of semi-psychedelic version in 1967. There's a high flying bird up in the sky And I wonder if that bird looks down as he flies by Um, was that a song about getting out of West Virginia? I was still alumni director after I got out of service. Right. And it was 12 o'clock one night, and I was remembering high coal. The mountains were so close together. You didn't have good sunshine, but several hours. And I remember seeing birds up in the sky flying over the mountains. And I would see those birds flying over the mountains and then and wishing I could go with them <laughs> because I was unhappy at home. I had a stepfather, and I didn't like him, and he didn't like me. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was a yearning. And just thinking back to that time and how sad I was for several years there, the high-flying bird. Well, Richie Havens premiered that song at Woodstock. Yeah. So about his second or third song was high-flying bird. And I wish he hadn't done it. Huh. Why is the that? reason being, he changed the whole damn storyline. Oh, mm. wow. It's a pathetic song. It's It a, has a pathos to it. It says, I used to have an old man, and he worked in the mine. He never saw the sun shine, but, Lord, he kept on trying. Mm. Then one day, my daddy, he up and died. My old man up and died. My daddy up and died. Oh, he had to fly away, and the only way to fly was to die. Hmm. Well, Richie Havens, the bastard, he said, (laughs) I had me an old woman. She lived (laughs) down by the mine. She never saw the sunshine, but she kept on trying. Now, what in the hell has a woman (laughs) who's not even a miner... Right supplanting my father yeah right my daddy in the song right right that makes no sense well unfortunately a whole lot of people learned the song from his version right right um well you know though cold tattoo and high flying bird are songs that give us a little insight into your upbringing the first real cut that you had as a songwriter was rock bowl weevil which pat boone recorded as the b-side to his 1959 top 20 single twixt 12 and 20. Yeah. bull weevil am a little black bug come from mexico then what come all the way from texas just looking for a place to rock he had to rock bull weevil rock bull weevil rock bull weevil had to rock now how were you able to catch that first break as a songwriter well, I was in Berea, Red Foley, lived in Berea, great country artist, as sure. you know. He had a couple of daughters, I think one was named Helen, and she married Pat Boone. Hmm. The other one was Betty, and I got to know Betty. And so I had just gotten home from service, 
down in Florida, yeah. Pensacola. And uh, I wrote the song. It was, I just took the old Bo Weevil song and just rocked it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And um, I put it on a wire tape recorder. I forget who did it for me. But I played it for Betty, and I gave her a copy. She sent it to Pat Boone, her brother-in-law. Right. Well, I was alumni director by then, and her husband, Bentley Cummins, who was a used car salesman, came to my office, and I got my first taste of the music business. Hmm. He said, Billy Ed, uh, took him an hour to get around to the point. (laughs) Uh, I said, Bentley, let me get this straight. You're, You're trying to say awkwardly, <laughs> that if I say that Betty co-wrote the song with me, you think Pat Boone would record it? He said, mm-hmm. well, uh, I reckon, uh, yeah, yeah, I guess so. Oh, gosh. I said, I said, Bentley, I wrote the song. My name is going to be on it, not Betty's. She's not a co-writer. Right. But I tell you, if it makes a lot of money, I'll give you a finder's fee. How's huh. that? Hmm. He says, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I learned later that somebody told me, Wayne Carson, I believe, he said, Billy Ed, the songwriter, is the last link on the, on the food chain. <laughs> Everybody wants a bite of it. <laughs> right, right. Now, Jack Spina, I think, was Pat's handyman, right. his manager and whatever, and my secretary called and says, you got to come to the office. Pat Boone's uh, manager is on the, off- on the phone you got to get here, Mr. Wheeler. Well, I went, and he he got to the point fairly soon. He wanted to publish mm-hmm. the song. Right. And I said, Jack, I can't give you the publishing rights. I, actually, I didn't know what publishing rights were. <laughs> right. I said, I, I can't do you that because uh, I met a man who has taken a whole bunch of my songs to New York, mm. and he's going to get me a, a record deal with uh, Monitor Records. Mm. It's a folk label up right. in New York. And uh, he sought me out in Berea, tracked me down, and offered to do that for me. Right. I said, I just can't give it to you. I, I love your singing. Uh, you're, you, you're married to a real, very fine woman from here in Berea. Right. But I'm sorry. Well, it wasn't long after that Pat Boone called. And I'm telling you, by then my secretary just about died. <laughs> right. <laughs> Because he was big yeah, in Berea. Sure, yeah. Big everywhere. You know, he had married a, a Berea girl, and, yeah. and he was hot. So I told him the same thing. I was flattered that he he wanted to record it. I think he already had, and they were just <laughs> trying to tie up all the loose ends. <laughs> right, shake you down a little. <laughs> but anyway, that was my first wow. entree. Yeah. into the realities of the music business. <laughs> right, well, right. You, you, you know, you mentioned that opportunity uh, with Monitor Records, and that, that came after the Berea Choir had recorded an album that you had added some, some folk song performances yeah, to, that, right? that was how I got on there. This man from New York, Harold Newman, he printed folios. Right. He was naturally interested in music, and when he came to a, a dance festival at Berea, it was called a Christmas Country Dance School. And while he was there, he picked up the, the Berea album, and he played it. And But after about two or three numbers, they would put a folk song on, which I sang. Mm-hmm. And they were they were traditional folk songs, like Froggy Went A-Courtin' and yeah. Black Jack Davy and uh, Whaley Whaley, you know, The mm-hmm. Water Is Wide. And, yeah. 
And he just took, he went out of his way to hunt me down and said, I like your singing, and if you don't have a record label, would you like to make one? And I said, yes, sir, I Hmm. would. Yeah. And I said, by the way, I've got about 15 songs, and if you want them, he said, oh, yes, oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. And he got me that record deal with Monitor Records. Wow. A wonderful, wonderful man. And I know that that somewhere in there you decided to go to Yale Drama School to study as a playwright. And I'm curious, given your interest in folk music and the fact that by this point you had already had a commercial cut with Pat Boone under your belt and and now you'd made an album as an artist, what prompted you to to pursue that route of going to, to Yale as opposed to giving your full attention to your budding music career at that point? Well, I didn't know I had a budding music career. I really didn't. Uh... I, at Berea College, they had a very active uh, theater group, and I loved to be in plays, and they encouraged you to write plays. And so I, I wrote a couple of one-act plays, and for some reason I had a yearning to write things for people to get up and say on stage. Huh, interesting. I just I don't know where that came from. Yeah. But I just thought, wouldn't that be cool Yeah. to yeah. write things? conversation, speeches, and then hear somebody up on that stage saying something artistically that I had written. Yeah. Now, that's weird, I know. But <laughs> that was kind of the impulse that that uh, made me think, well, maybe I ought to go study. If I can get into Yale, it's pretty expensive. Yeah. Well, I just up and wrote them a letter, and I said, I don't have any money, but I'd like to come. And uh, Thornton Wilder had come to Berea and gave all of us who were interested a 15-minute chance to talk to him. Hmm. He had done uh, Our Town, which was a worldwide hit. Sure. So I may have dropped his name when I wrote (laughs) for admission. Right. I was astounded that they took me. They gave me a a work scholarship. Hmm. But I really thought, well... I'm their token hillbilly. (laughs) (laughs) Had a one of everybody. (laughs) Well, I understand that that when you were up there at at Yale, that you would sometimes make these trips down to New York City to maybe drum up some gigs as a folk singer. And it was on one of those trips that you ended up getting connected with Norman Gimbel, who is a lyricist today best known for songs such as Killing Me Softly and The Girl from, from Ipanema. Tell us how you met him and and what he did for your songwriting career. You've done your homework. I've forgotten a lot of that. (laughs) So I I had heard by asking around that Harold, uh, what was his name? Leventhal, Harold Leventhal. He was the manager and agent for a whole lot of folk singers and actors also. Yeah. So I I went to his office somewhere in mid-Manhattan. I was waiting to go into his office to sing him a song if I could and see if he could book me up somewhere. Yeah. Well, this short guy came out. Instead of going straight for the elevator, he saw me over to the side with my guitar. He came over and said, Hi, I'm Norman Gimble. <laughs> I said, I'm Billy Ed Wheeler. He said, What? You are? My God. He said, My wife goes by Monitor Records. She's a model on the way to work. She saw your album in the, in the window. Wow. She bought it and brought it back to me, and he said, Billy, man, you're a natural. You're <laughs> just a natural songwriter. Wow. He said, but 
you're never going to make any money. But, boy, you're a natural. <laughs> I said, well, Norman, why can't I make any money? He said, well, Billy, you just take songs as they come out. You mm-hmm. don't shape them. You don't edit them. He said, but I can't explain the creative process to you. He said, I'll tell you what. I've got some buddies who make more money in music than anybody in the world. They're called Lieber and Stoller. Yeah, Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller. Yeah. I want, I'll take you to them, and maybe they can tell you more about the creative process. <laughs> right. So the next time I came down, I'd never heard of them. He took me to Broadway, 49th and Broadway, to the Brill Building, the famous yeah, sure. Brill Building. He took me up. Now, as you know, I'm sure producers, big-time producers and song publishers don't like for you to sit and sing to them straight <laughs> at. Mm, right. They want to hear a tape. They don't want to have to deal with your personality and maybe <laughs> insult, insult you. That's, that's a fact. Yeah, right? yeah. But uh, they did. They sat down, and they were very, very busy. They were, they were producing the Drifters, the Coasters, mm, yeah. Elvis Presley. I didn't know any of that. I just thought, here's two nice nice New York guys taking yeah. time. Well, I sang them about two and a half or three songs, and they would cut me off and say, that's enough of that one. <laughs> Finally, they said, Billy, we can't use any of this stuff. Mm. It's too folksy, and yeah. it's not well written. So I said, well, Jerry, how do I get better? He said, look, there's no secrets, but just start listening to songs more carefully. What's it about? That's the main thing. Hmm. When you know what it's going to be about, write you an opening verse to introduce it and get to the payoff quickly and then wrap it up with a final verse and maybe a repeat of the chorus. Yeah. But anyway, that's pretty that good was advice. pretty good. Yeah. That yeah. was very good advice. And so I started trying to think in that direction. Right. So that was back in the days of all the Westerns, Gunsmoke and right. High Chaparral and, and the Gunfighter and just so many. I thought, I'm going to write me a shoot 'em up Western ballad. <laughs> so I started writing a verse. He rode easy in the saddle. He was tall and lean. First he thought nothing but a streak of mean could make a man look so downright strong. Well, I got into it, and I wrote an opening verse, and I wrote a chorus. And I decided, I don't know a damn thing about the West. I don't know a gilding from a roan. I'm in strange territory here. I just laid it aside. And then a teacher from Warren Wilson, she had my address. She sent me a picture of a man on horseback named John C. Campbell. Yeah. He was a minister who also started the John C. Campbell Folk School over in Brasstown, North Carolina. Right. And she said, he goes around where they don't have a regular preacher, and he preaches to people, and he marries them and buries them. Hmm. Uh, well, I saw that man on horseback with high-top boots, and he was a preacher. And I thought, growing up in West Virginia, you, you knew who could whip who. <laughs> right. I was not at the top of that totem pole. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, th- I just thought, I'll bet you a dollar. When he went out in some of these mountain communities, he, he was, his faith was challenged. Right. So that was the spark for the idea. And I said, oh, Mule Train. There was a popular song called Mule Train. Sure. And there was a line in that, there's a Bible in the sack for the Reverend Mr. Black. Mm, yeah. I thought, well, hell, there's my title. 
Yeah. There's my title. And I started, I said, I don't have a gunfighter. I've got a preacher. Wow. That's cool. <laughs> wow. Now, I was still at Yale when I started that. Yeah. But I thought, now, this might be something, if I work on it real hard, I could I could call up quartet music and ask them if I could talk to Jerry or Mike. Yeah. So I wrote out about 15 verses. <laughs> wow. Jeez. And, and I... I got the chorus from the, it was traditional, you know, got to walk that lonesome valley. Sure. From there, I called the office and finally got Jerry on the phone, and I started reciting the song. And when I got to the chorus, he started snapping his fingers and saying, yeah, baby, mm-hmm. yeah, baby. <laughs> right. New York talk. <laughs> he said, okay, he said, bring that one in. Well, I took it in, and he and Mike sat down with me, and we boiled it down from about a nine-minute song to a three-and-a-half-minute song. Wow. They they took half the writers and all the publishing. Right. And Jerry said, now, Billy, we're taking part of this song because we made a big contribution. What you had didn't work. You had 100% of nothing. (laughs) Now you've got 50% of something. (laughs) Make sense to me? Yeah, yeah. So they put their song plugger on the plane. Kingston Trio was cutting at that very moment. Wow. He rode easy in the saddle. He was tall and lean. And at first you thought nothing but a streak of mean could make a man look so downright strong. But when look in his eyes and you knowed you was wrong. He was a mountain of a man and I want you to know he could preach hot hell or freezing snow. He carried a Bible in a canvas sack and the folks just called him the Reverend Mr. Black. He was poor as a beggar, but he rode like a king. Sometimes in the evening I could hear him sing. I got to walk that lonesome valley. I got to walk it by myself. Well, yeah, and that, and that turned out to be a top ten hit for them, and even a top ten R&B hit uh, in 1963. Um, but, you know, yeah. your, your first hit on the country chart um, came right on the heels of that pop success. Uh, when Hank Snow recorded the top ten hit, The Girl Who Loved the Man Who Robbed the Bank at Santa Fe and Got she Away. Cried when she learned what he'd done that day. The girl who loved the man who robbed the bank at Santa Fe and got away. I had been writing, they, they let me start writing for them. Once, once uh, Reverend Mr. Black became a hit, they put me on a $25 a week draw. Wow. Hmm. So uh, I was extremely flattered when uh, Jerry called me one day and says, we got a song we want you to help us with. Wow. And I'm thinking, my, my God, are you kidding me? <laughs> Lieber and Stoller want me? Well, I went into the office, and uh, they played it for me. And I said, well, Jerry... You don't have a woman in it. This mm-hmm. guy's making oodles of money. So what? What the hell is he going to do with it? <laughs> he ain't got a woman to spend it on. So we sat down, and this became the title. The girl who loved the man who robbed the bank at Santa Fe and got away. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> right. Well, you know, talking about about Mike and Jerry, um, you had had a, a, a charting song, What to Do with Laurie, that you co-wrote with those guys. It was recorded by Mike Clifford. Yeah, with Jerry. Um, yeah. 
You had the Reverend Mr. Black. You had uh, the man who robbed the bank at Santa Fe. Um, you wrote nearly a dozen more songs with, with Jerry and Mike, including The Gunfighter, which was cut by Tommy Rowe. Tonight I'm Singing Just For yeah. You, which Country Joe McDonald recorded. You had After Taxes, which, which Johnny Cash covered. And I think Mike and Jerry probably wrote more songs with you than they did any other collaborator. Do you know if that's correct? I wrote uh, several songs, not with uh, Mike included. Right. Jerry had a really nice pad on uh, right a big street right at the bottom of the the uh, park Central Park. Right. He started inviting me to come to his house after after he went home. He was a workaholic. Mm. He invited me to come and and write with him, and that was uh, that flattered the Dickens out of wow, me. Sure. And. Uh, he would ask me sometimes, he would say, uh, have you had supper? Are you hungry? I'd say, are you kidding? Yeah. <laughs> he said, well, we got some spaghetti left. Right. So I'd sit down and eat, and then he and I would write. Hmm. Wow. Hmm. Well, and and probably your best-known song is, is Jackson, which is credited to you and, and Jerry. And that first appeared on your 1964 album, A New Bag of Songs, which I believe Mike and Jerry also uh, produced. And you're singing with Joan Summer on that track, if I'm not mistaken. We got married in a fever Hotter than a pepper sprout We've been talking about Jackson Ever since the fire went out I'm going to Jackson Gonna mess around I'm going to Jackson Tell us a little bit about the story behind Jackson. Well, I, uh, Edward Albee wrote Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. I got a copy of the script, and the first line of dialogue in that script is, Jesus H. Christ. <laughs> and it, that set the tone for the arguments. This guy was married to a college president's daughter. Right. And he was a college president. Hmm. And so they fought all the time. And it was a raunchy piece of material. Yeah. Yeah. But the main thing that impressed me was how they argued. Hmm. And I thought, you know, that's human nature. Men and women do that. Most of us, it's good time. It's flirtatious. It's it's good. It's not mean-spirited. It's just natural. You know, the old man said, honey, I'm going to go kick up my heels a little bit and check out them women. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You won't believe how many people have called me or written me to say, which Jackson are you talking about? (laughs) Right, right, right. And sometimes I'd lie, whoever called from, like, Jackson, Minnesota. (laughs) I'd say, yeah, (laughs) yeah, it's your Jackson. Right. That's it. (laughs) I'm not going to lie anymore. I didn't. I didn't write it about any particular Jackson. Right. I just needed a hard consonant <laughs> instead of Nashville. Yeah, exactly. You know, that's too soft. The song really captures that kind of like you know witty repartee between a, a man and a woman. It, it, it was so great with Johnny Cash and June Carter, uh, but then it was also a hit for Nancy Sinatra and Lee Hazelwood on the pop chart. But before that, you had had your own top five hit as both artist and writer when the novelty song "Ode to the Little Brown Shack" out back hit the top five on the country yeah. charts. I mean, that even appeared on the pop chart in 1964. Don't let them tear that little brown building down. Don't let them 
precious building down don't let them tear that little brown building down for there's not another like it in the country or the town now talk about writing from personal experience that was very <laughs> autobiographical right and it was kind of controversial at the time wasn't it yeah you know it it doesn't have any cuss words in it but right. just writing about an outhouse <laughs> right, didn't right. set right with a lot of people. <laughs> I took uh, uh, I took a, a version of it to Dave Cap personally, right? And he was very sophisticated. He was a New York guy, and when I played that song for him, he said, "No, Billy, <laughs> we would like to have a hit with you, but not about outhouses." <laughs> right. I said. Okay. Well, I was in an outdoor drama called Stars in My Crown out in West Kentucky. And I sang that at a hootenanny. I played guitar, and I hit several clunkers on it. Just, <laughs> I'd just be going, chon to the chon, dong, chon to the chon, chon, dong. <laughs> well, nobody cared because it was funny. Right, right. And those kids could relate to it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and so the following summer I went out to be in that same drama and I had written a couple of songs so I went to that studio while I, after I did my songs the, the studio owner says uh, Billy I've got something I think you might like to hear when you played at that hooting on you last summer he said I should have told you but I recorded you oh wow huh. well he played it for me and I, and I could hear all that laughter mm which it was natural, right? and I made some ad-libs, and I said, I got to have a copy of that. I sent it to Dave Cap and told him the response I was getting from people uh -huh. singing it live. Yeah. Well, he, he wired me back and says, we're putting it out immediately. Wow. <laughs> wow. And that's how it that's got started. That's how it came together. Um, you mentioned Dave Cap, who you know was the head of, of Cap Records, and a lot of the songs that you recorded on your albums for the Cap label in 1963 and 1964 were also recorded by other artists. Um, just a few examples. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, Hank Snow cut Blue Roses. The Kingston Trio had a top 40 with Desert Pete. Cole Tattoo was recorded by many artists. Glenn Campbell covered Ann, and, and Johnny Cash did Blistered, which was a top five country hit for him in 1969. I got great big blisters on my bloodshot eyes and looking at that long-legged woman up ahead. What she does simply walking down the sidewalks of that city makes me think about a stray cat getting fed. She's got a whole lot of motion in her soul, I know, but her soul ain't the place she lets it show. She got a body Oh, yeah. got um, do you feel like most of your success as a songwriter came from your publishers actively pitching the material, or was it more about other artists who happened to like your records and, and kind of want to do their own versions of your songs? Well, uh, I, I really don't have an answer for that. To me, I think it would probably be, be both. Mm -hmm. Now, Jerry and Mike, they were active publishers. I mean, you know, when they when we finished that song, River Mr. Black, he put a guy on a plane. He says, take this out. Well, he was a hustler. He was trying to get songs recorded yeah. for his artist and, and for his publishing company. Right. So I don't have a, a 
cut and dried answer for that. I sure. think it was just a combination of the two. Yeah. Well, you know, we've we've mentioned Johnny Cash several times, and he recorded quite a few of your songs. Obviously, Jackson and Blistered were big hits, but he also charted with a version of the Reverend Mr. Black and covered After yeah. Taxes. So he was obviously a fan of yours. Did you have a personal friendship with Johnny? When Johnny and June did Jackson, I, I heard about it from Chris Christopherson. He hadn't made it in Nashville yet. He was still janitor at Columbia Records, I think. Right. There was a little dump, a house on 16th Avenue South, where a lot of pickers would go and hang out. Mm. And they would have a beer there and shoot pool. Well, I heard about it. It was not public knowledge. It was just kind of what they they called it the clubhouse, but it, mm. it didn't resemble a golf clubhouse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I went there, and I, I I was having a beer, and Chris came in and sat next to me, introduced himself, and he said, Billy, <laughs> I was just at Columbia Records. I, Johnny and June just cut your song, Jackson. Wow. Nice. I said, really? I said, how did it come out? He said, oh, man. He said, it sounded great. He said, now, Johnny was, he was stepping high. He said, I saw him walking down the hall. And he was stepping high over imaginary logs. <laughs> so he was feeling he was feeling pretty good. <laughs> that's great. So that's the way I. Uh, that was the first inkling that they had actually cut the song because I'd met him earlier. My 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 wife and I went to Carnegie Hall where they were having the New York Folk Festival. Right. I could get backstage because I was on the bill. Hmm. But way down the list, Johnny was head of the list. Right. And uh, I met him backstage. He was with June, but they weren't married yet. Right. And he says, Billy, he said, when I'm performing and I think I'm losing my audience, they're going to sleep on me. I whistle for June. She comes out. We do Jackson. He said, it just brings them right back up. Uh, We're going to cut that song one of these days. Right. That's great. Right. (laughs) And sure enough. I thought. Wow, they usually cut them and then go out and perform, and right, trying right. it out. Right, that's so cool. <laughs> well, which kind of brings me to, you, you mentioned Carnegie Hall and, and a folk show there that you were playing on. You know, Johnny Cash was one of the very few artists who was commercially successful in country music, but was also very much embraced by the folk audience. And it seems to me that you occupied kind of a, a similar space. Um, you know, by 1969, you were regarded as a, a country artist and country writer, but your songs were also being covered by people like Judy Collins and, and Jim Croce and Richie Havens, Country Joe McDonald. Um, I know you even performed at the Newport Folk Festival and, and really embraced kind of that, that folk aesthetic as well. And this was an era when folk music and countercultural politics went hand in hand. And a hillbilly singer from Appalachia wasn't usually the same guy as a Yale-educated troubadour playing at the Newport Folk Festival. And somehow you kind of managed to be... Both of those, and I'm wondering if there was ever any kind of tension for you in terms of the different types of audiences that were drawn to your music. Well, uh, when I, when uh, when the Little Brown Chat came out, there was no folk charts. Right. And even though it was not straight out country, it was more folk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was probably pure folk, just me and a guitar and a song about an outhouse. <laughs> but but. Since there was no folk charts, they put it on the country charts. Sure. So I think, in in general, I was a man without a country. Mm. When I <laughs> got around really erudite people, 
I was a country bumpkin. Right. When I got around country people, I was a, what do you call it when somebody's ultra smart? Mr. Uh, Ivy League? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, I was stuck right in between. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I just, I, it, it, it just seemed natural to me. Right, right. Yeah, this is who you were. Once I got into country music, and actually Jerry, Jerry and Mike sold my contract to UA Music. Right. And Murray Deutsch, the vice president, called and said, "Do you have any business experience?" And I said, "Well, I was alumni director, and I had a staff and a budget." He said, "Well, we want you to go to Nashville and open an office up for us." Hmm. And wow. I said, "Love to do it." Yeah. So I got to go to town at their expense. I was on salary, and, and I was drawing money from uh, advances as one of their new songwriters. Yeah, wow. yeah. So that kind of helped me get my foot in the in the door at, in Nashville. Yeah. And my office was right across the street from RCA and Chad Atkins. Mm, right. Now this would have been, what, late 1960s? It was 1968. Yeah. So you were still... That's why I went to open up their office. Right. And uh, I, I was there for two years, and I got tired of doing uh, all that, you know, acting like I was busy and sending reports back to UA <laughs> Music in New York. Right. I was trying to push their, their show tunes down in Nashville, and well. nobody wanted them. <laughs> right, right. But you were having a good bit of success as a country songwriter in the late 60s. I mean, Johnny Darrell had a couple of top 40 hits with your material and, and Hank Jr. took your song Baby Again to number 16 on the Billboard charts. So you're sort of this creative songwriting guy and then you get offered this job, you know, going from the purely creative life of songwriting to the administrative life of working in the business side of music and it sounds like ultimately we see where your heart was. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, I gave up a pretty good salary with, you know, incredible benefits. Hmm with a big corporation like that because I just got tired of shuffling papers. Mm, yeah. And I wanted to I wanted to spend more time writing. Yeah. Yeah. Well yeah, you eventually left Nashville then and you returned to North Carolina, but we see your songs continuing to be cut by artists like Johnny Duncan. He had a number twelve country hit with Baby Smile Woman's Kiss. And then one of my personal heroes, Elvis Presley, recorded Never Again and It's Midnight. It's getting late. Um, and yeah. It's Midnight was the B-side of Promised Land, and that became a top 10 country hit in its own right. Tell us how you landed that Elvis cut. Well, that was through uh, Jerry Chestnut, my co-writer. Mm -hmm. Jerry, uh, I met Jerry on, they had lots and lots of golf tournaments back then. Right. Jerry and I started writing together. And so one day he called me and said, Billy Ed, you want to go play some golf? I said, well, who with? He said, me and you and Lamar. 
I said, Lamar Fike? He said, yeah. Hmm. I said, Jerry, I've seen Lamar hit the ball. He, 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 can, he can hardly hit it out of his shadow. Now, <laughs> granted, it's a hell of a big shadow. It's a shadow. big shadow. <laughs> it's a big shadow. I said, I don't think so. He said, well, you know he's taking our songs to Elvis. I said, well, hell, I ain't going to play unless Lamar's coming. Right. <laughs> <laughs> So that's how we got our song to Elvis. Lamar took songs to Elvis, right? And he was Elvis's gopher, right? Yeah, yeah. He would fire Elvis and then take pity on him and hire him back. <laughs> <laughs> they had a love-hate relationship. Right, yeah. I remember when Elvis gave him a twenty-five thousand dollar Mercedes. Wow! And you know what he did? He went out and sold it. Oh, jeez! Oh, wow! But you know, yeah, we you told him he was crazy. Right. We put it up on blocks and cover it up. It's a jewel. I mean, right, right. Um, did you ever get the chance to spend any time with Elvis? No, but he came to uh, Asheville, which is only eight miles from where I live right, right. now, Swannanoa, North Carolina. Yeah, Asheville, North Carolina. Yeah, I knew Lamar was in town, and Elvis was staying at a Roadway Inn. He had the whole top floor. So I got to go in and and uh, see, you know, mix in. Uh, Felton Jarvis was his producer. Sure. So I remember I, I went to their room, and it was right next to Elvis's room. Felton Jarvis. Lamar was normally there because it was his room, and then a couple of bodyguards. Right. The phone rang, and I said, "Lamar Fikes, residence, may <laughs> I be of service?" <laughs> it was Elvis. He oh, said, nice. Just Elvis. <laughs> Uh, I said, oh, oh, Elvis, uh, this is Billy Ed. I, uh, Lamar's not here. I'm just goofing off, and I want to thank you for doing my songs. And he said, thank you for writing them. Just <laughs> tell cool. Lamar to call me when he gets back. And I said, okay. Wow. So that I was that close to him right. in the adjoining room, but I didn't, didn't get him. to meet him. I went to see him at the, uh, the Civic Center in Asheville. Right. I was in the audience, and Elvis says, I'm going to sing a song now by a local boy. I know all of you know him. He reached into his pocket, took out a piece of paper, and read it. Billy Ed Wheeler. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> he, said, he said, good friend of mine. And then he had to look it good up. Good friend of mine. <laughs> and I asked Lamar, I said, what was that all about? He said, Elvis can't remember names. If it was Liza Minnelli, he'd have to write it down. <laughs> So I told, I, I boasted around, Elvis can take me around in his pocket anywhere he wants to go. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, but your success continued in the late 70s with Jerry Reed's top 15 recording of Give Me Back My Blues, uh, Roy Clark's top 20, Chain Gang of Love. And then 20 years after your first cut, you scored your first number one record on a Billboard chart when Kenny Rogers took Coward of the County to the top spot on the country rankings and then also number three on the pop chart. Promise me, son, not to do the things I've done. Walk away from trouble if you can. It won't mean you're weak if you turn the other cheek. I hope you're old enough to understand. Um, talk about the inspiration for that song and how you and your co-writer Roger Bowling put that together. I 
just barely met Roger once or twice in Nashville. He he was hanging out big time with Larry Butler, who was producing uh, Kenny Rogers. Yeah. Well, uh, he went off to uh, over here in Georgia somewhere, but he sent, he called me. He had he got had my number or got it some way, and that's not too far from here. And it seemed like he wanted to talk to somebody, maybe co-write, somebody who had escaped Nashville like I did, uh, and right. like he did. And so I said, come on over. Come on, drive on over and let's have lunch. So he drove over here, and uh, it's probably about 60 miles. I can't, I'm mm. not exactly sure. Yeah. So we had lunch, and we started writing a song on our first meeting. It was called Fever Reliever. <laughs> and I don't think, we didn't ever get it cut. Yeah. It wasn't that great a song. Hmm. But it was a beginning. Yeah. So then one day he says, why don't we write a story song? I said, that seems to be your forte. Hmm. And he said, it's mine, because he wrote Lucille. I said, okay, you got any ideas? He said, well, I've got a title, The Promise. He said, how about you? I said, I don't have a title or any ideas, but let's <laughs> think about it. Well, I thought, for some reason, I thought of uh, My Fair Lady, that Eliza Doolittle, right. that these elocutionists yeah. took took charge of. Yeah, They made a bet that they could take this little Cartney girl and teach her how to speak, and they could pass her off as a princess. Mm, right. Well... I felt sorry for that girl because they were molding her like a piece of clay. Yeah. And I wanted her somehow or other to get her come up against mm. those guys. Yeah. In other words, I wanted I wanted a song about somebody who came from behind. Mm. Right. And and then that naturally led to the thought, well, maybe he's a coward. People think he's a coward. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. And so the promise still figured into that. In the chorus, promise me, son, not to do the things I've oh, done. Yeah. yeah. So we we just started it out, and we we wrote half of it, and then laid it off for a while. I was having trouble figuring out how he could talk to his dad, you know, after his daddy died. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, Roger solved that. He said, in the middle of it, he says uh, he reached above the fireplace and took down his daddy's picture. Hmm. As his tears fell on his daddy's face, he heard those words again. So that's the way we yeah. got yeah. Father yeah. in there. Great Promise song. me, son, yeah. not to do the things I've done. That's yeah. great. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you said something that, that piqued my interest there. You, you, you said that uh, Roger told you that story songs were, were kind of your forte. And, you know, you said something earlier, too, about the idea of writing words for someone else to to say on a stage and you of course have written um several plays and you've also written several books um do you think of these various artistic outlets in terms of songwriting book writing playwriting are they different expressions of the same impulse to be a storyteller or are these completely different disciplines for you i think they're they're more alike than you know unlike mm. right yeah. yeah, you're just fleshing out the characters. Instead of just writing speeches for them, you're, you're showing them 
on stage as a person. Mm, right. And so you have to fill them out, flesh them out. But you, but some of the same principles still apply. You need a payoff. You know, you you got to have action. You got to have conflict. So my yeah. first big outdoor drama, I was commissioned by uh, a state park in Beckley, West Virginia. And the director was a friend of mine, so he took it to the board, and one of the board members said, now, wait a minute, ain't this guy the one that wrote that goddamn song about an outhouse? <laughs> we don't want a playwright who writes songs about outhouses. <laughs> Yule said, yeah, that's him, but he, he studied playwriting at Yale University. Right. And the guy said, oh. No. Oh, well, I didn't know that. <laughs> right. So I got the job. Wow. That's it premiered crazy. in 1970, Yeah. and it ran every summer until two years ago. Wow. It ran yeah. 45 years every wow. summer. It's amazing. Um, you know, writing plays, writing books, is, you know, the, the success has kept coming. And in 2011, you topped the bluegrass charts with Charlie Sizemore's version of No Lawyers in Heaven. May there be no lawyers in heaven, no legal eagles up there in the sky. May there be no lawyers in heaven. I was out on the coast with Paul Kraft. We had hooked up. And I was uh, teaching a, a songwriting class out there called the Great Atlantic Song Chase. Right. And uh, a friend of mine, Charlie, he heard us talking about uh, heaven and hell and, and lawyers. And <laughs> he said, I bet you one thing, there ain't no lawyers in heaven. <laughs> <laughs> you know, implying that they're all crooked. Right, right, right. Well, I looked at Paul. I looked at Paul and I said, "No lawyers in heaven." I think yeah. we got it right. Song, that. Yeah. <laughs> so we so we wrote it, and Charlie did a damn good job with it. Yeah, wow. sure did. You know, we just want to thank you for giving us some time today. It's really been a pleasure to to hear your stories and and hear some more about your career. It's really been a lot of fun. Nice talking to you and Paul. So yeah. All right. You guys have a good day. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Again, you can find us by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. While Songcraft is available to our listeners at no charge, we ask friends like you to consider becoming a Songcraft patron at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. There you can pledge as little as $2 per month to help Songcraft continue its mission of bringing you great interviews with great songwriters. Plus, you'll have the opportunity to access bonus content and get the chance to enjoy unique rewards and experiences as a member. We look forward to getting together again with you for the next episode of Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. We got married in a beach.